we pick it up now in verse, we're going to, well, I have a new saying. It's if uh, you, you jump further with a running start. So we're going to get a running start from verse 17, though we read it last week. We didn't um, uh, read chapter, verse 18, and it really fits together. So, Father, we pray right now. We thank you for uh, the people who are with us today. And there's others here that are just a blessing to us that have come to just share with us in this day that are, that are usually here. And, um, and yet we thank you so much that you are always here. <laughs> There's never a time where you decide to sleep in, be busy elsewhere for anyone. And uh, you say, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you through James. And we receive that this morning. That it isn't, will God speak to us? Will God minister to us? It's really, will we hear and respond? So God, give us that hunger and desire the one that can be filled with righteousness, in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 17, we read last week, and he, speaking of Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things consist. And verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. We developed that concept of the fact that it doesn't mean he was the first of many only, but he has the first place in, he's not a created being, Jesus is the creator of all, and there's so many places the New Testament tells us this. You know, he has first place. Uh, Sometimes people say in our culture, second place is just the first loser. Have you heard that? Like when they're playing sports? That's stupid. That's uh, kind of self, that's like somebody who wants to be arrogant. There's nothing wrong in sports and other activities to not be the very best, but to be, the goal here is to be the best you can. My best isn't your best. I'm sorry that I'm such a fast runner that none of you could keep up with me, but, you know, everybody can't be number one at everything. That's not the point. Or even number one at what you're good at. But it's how you put your heart into what you do. But in the kingdom of God, in, the, in Jesus' name, and in his authority and who he is, there is only first place. Because here's how it works. If you make Jesus first in your life, and that's like a lifelong project we're working on. That isn't, I decided this one day, and that's just the way it's been, like in every situation ever since. Is anybody living that way? Like, or are you challenged to place him there again and again and again and to take, take a stock of your life and of your decisions? You see, the decision you make isn't just the decision you make, but it also speaks of the way that you make decisions. Um, So it it kind of amazes me when Christians make decisions about relationships that are so contrary to Scripture right off the bat and are looking for God's blessing in the relationship. Like, you're taking the, you know, such as uh, purity in a relationship, you're taking the thing that God has made the clearest of all, about how to have a healthy relationship, and you're not only making a poor decision, but you're showing how you're going to make decisions, contrary to God. That's not a good, that's not a good start. You with me? You understand what I'm talking about? There's young ears in the room. Okay, so <laughs> first place, Jesus, if you make him first, if I make him first, it doesn't mean there'll be no hardship in our life. In fact, there'll be some hardships that come because we've made him first. But your life will be in order. You'll have peace in the area that you really need the peace. And once Jesus slips from number one to number two, that's huge. Why? 
because 2 to 3 to 4 to 10 is just an easy, slippery slope. You know, it's kind of like when you get, we'll do a few car things today, since most people have cars. You know, if you, when I had this, I had, I, my first new car was a 1985 GLC, a Mazda little compact car, four-door. And I remember that I, somebody gave us a rocking chair, and I had kept the car so perfect. You know, you first get a car, and then I tried to put a rocking chair or something in the car, and I ripped the headliner. I had made a decision. Previously, I'd say, no, I'll get a pickup truck. I'll borrow something. I will make all my decisions about this car based on keeping it number one And get what I'm saying? You know what happened once I ripped the headliner? Ah, we'll drink Coke in the car. Ah, we'll just, you know, it's like the car starts to go down because it's hard to keep it at number two and have that be as meaningful as number one. So often we make people in our life number one. And then we try to make God number two, but it's all weirded out. It's all messed up. And I could go on. And I will, but different place. (laughs) So, but the fullness is in him. Not bondage, but freedom from sin, from self, from the unfulfilled life. Fullness is in Jesus. And so we're not offended. A a true Christian who understands the gospel is not offended that in Revelation 4.11 it says... For you and by you, all things were created. It's all for your pleasure, Lord God. It's all for your pleasure, Jesus. That doesn't offend me. That frees me. Because you know what? I can't even please myself. I can't keep myself going on my own energy of purpose and direction without the Lord. It just gets all messed up. Maybe you're looking at me saying, boy, you're a really pathetic case. You're right. Pray for me. But if you think you're any different, you might be deceived. So would you create something not to please yourself? Would you build a cabinet in a room where the corner of it sat right over your desk like I installed? <laughs> so that every time, not quite, but I did do it kind of over my desk. And I stood up and what did I do? I got the corner right in my head. I said, ah, you're a genius, Rick. <laughs> and I had to move it over a little bit. You know, there was a way to move it a little bit because I didn't create that to harm myself or to cause it to be stupid and foolish and ugly. I created it for good. Are you with me? So we're not smarter than God. But there's a problem. We're in his image after his likeness. That's all the choice that we get. Does it answer the evil in the world completely? Well, you're not going to remove the need for faith by human logic and uh, answer every question by human philosophy and logic. Everybody has to exercise faith, and so do philosophers. And so do logicians, <laughs> logical people. So anyway, as we move forward now, in verse 20, and by him, it pleased the God, Father to put all fullness in Jesus because they're one, and that's, but he's showing Christ's coming to earth in this. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Oh, man. You, you're not being unthinking to believe God's word, but you're being honest and walking in humility to know that my need to be reconciled to God is huge. It's real. His cross speaks that he preeminently took my sin on himself and he made peace with me, for me, in me. 
you know, is peace the absence of conflict? In part, actually it is, in part, but not in completion, not in fullness. In fullness, the peace of God is that which surpasses understanding. It's greater. But what a gift to have true peace. Not peace in circumstances that everything is the way you want it, but peace in purpose, peace in destiny, peace in hope, peace in God's promise. 21 through 23, we get into the, 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 the meat of what he's saying here in this. Well, it's all powerful. It's all, you could do uh, messages out of every verse here. The, the, the issue here is that Paul, as I've said from the beginning, is addressing the false doctrine that is swirling around not only Colossae but the region there, uh, where it's taking away from the deity of Christ and the supremacy of Christ and the preeminence of Christ and making him less than. And every time you lower who Jesus is in your eyes, you raise yourself for a fall and to be apart from God. So he's strong on this point. And you, who were once alienated, verse 21, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. An alienated mind filled with wicked works. Laboring in my own imagination not even necessarily intentionally being in opposition to God. You don't have to choose suddenly to be in opposition to God. Your mind works in a fallen state without God. Your natural inclinations, even with good intentions, are separated from God by our sin. This is the point of the gospel. Again, not... Bad people made good, good people made better. Lost people, unregenerated people being made alive to God, regenerated in their spirit, made for what they were intentionally and initially created. But I have an imagination. So we talked, Ken talked about it, um, Joel and the group sang about it. He is holy. God is holy. God has never, he's separate from sin He's pure and he's perfect in his ways. And he's never moved one iota from that. Okay? God has never, he does, he does not change. He's holy, he's pure, he doesn't move one iota. He demands purity. Well, wow, that's, that's a little rough. I mean, couldn't he just, what, what happens if God lowers his standard. You know, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If God lowers his standard, it will be our will being done in heaven as it is on earth. Do you want heaven, the eternal end of things, the eternal completion and fulfillment, the new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem, all those things in Revelation. Do you want that to look like earth? I don't. Yeah, I'm looking at a lot of no's. No, 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 no. That's what would happen. If God lowers his standard, it doesn't help us. 
It destroys us. He remains who he is, but he couldn't really do that because who he is is holy. And what needs to be in that place of presence with God eternally needs to be holy. And if he lowers his standard to help us feel better about ourselves, we don't end up feeling better. We end up destroying each other and ourselves. So we were alienated. You know, we were alienated and God didn't change, but he did move. He moved. How far did he move? You go back a couple of pages, you don't have to, I'll read it to you, in one of many of our favorite verses, Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, verse 5 says, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Now, I'm not going to take the time to do a study in Philippians 2. Just hear those words, who Christ is and where he came. He moved. God came. Through the blood of the cross, it says in Colossians, he paid our debt. He, I love those little sayings that help you remember what a whole bunch of scriptures say. I do love them. I don't replace the scripture with them, but I, I try to remember them. So he paid a debt he did not owe. For me, who owes a debt, I cannot pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. For me, who owes a debt, I cannot pay. You know, we talk about people paying their debts to society. To society, We talk about people making right their wrongs, and that's a true right thing to do wherever you can. I'm sorry could mean nothing. I'm sorry I was wrong, please forgive me is better. And if it's something that you can correct, you go back and correct what you did wrong. You can't do that with everything. We need the grace of God to move forward and believe that he can cover what we can't fix because there's stuff you can't fix. Does anybody here besides me have stuff you can't fix? Yeah. So, we are forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Adam, where are you? I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? First thing Adam did, I mean, I know he sowed fig leaves, but they sowed the fig leaves probably while they were hiding, <laughs> you know, behind the bush with the fig leaves, which kind of exposed them. Uh, but God could find them anyway. The first thing you do when you sin is you hide from God. It's, it's just the nature of man in a fallen state. Adam fell, Adam hid. Adam fell, Adam hid. Was he really hidden from God? They're like there's few things that could be less productive and capable by man than hiding from God. You know, we were hiking with our kids once, and Gail went behind a tree about this big around and went like this, like, you can't find me. <laughs> and she made a joke about, you know, being seen. And uh, it was just as in her silliness of doing that as a joke with me and the kids, it was a picture of what I do, what you do. Okay, you did it once, and you've never done it again. Good for you. But for us, some of us, it's a little bit more repeatedly 
and we do it seriously, hiding from God. Alienated means we were living in our godless imagination. What happened in Genesis 6 was that man progressed in his separation from God because of the fall in his unregenerate state, unredeemed state. Man progressed to the point where the thoughts and the imaginations of the heart, of the mind, were only evil continuously. There was a progression of sin. It went further down the road, alienated an enemy to God, not, listen, 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 not God made you his enemy. I made God my enemy by my fallen state and my sinful behavior and the thoughts of my mind even when I'm trying to think right. You know, I gave a really weak example. I told him at first service, this is a weak example, so if you got a better one, give it to me. And sure enough, Richard Adams Mysterious and spooky. He's altogether ooky. The Adams family. He shaved his beard down so he can't do Cousin It anymore. If those of you who know Richard. I looked over at him and I started thinking of that song. And, uh, and then I put it in everybody else's mind. You're welcome. You're welcome. The Adams family. But, uh, and now I have the audacity to say, now stay focused with me. I mean, how does that work? Okay. So he said there was a kid. There was a lady 25 years ago in Connecticut. It was a news item on the news TV. Her husband went out and surprised her and bought her a brand new car. She loved the car. They got in it with their son, who was about eight years old, I think. He didn't have the exact age. And they started driving around. She says, I love this car. I just love how it drives. I love the seats. I just don't like the color. And she kept going on and on about how she didn't like the color. I mean, kind of um, repeatedly. Well, they get home, put the car in the garage. The husband and wife go inside. The kid's playing, and they don't see him for a while. He goes, Mom, Dad, come come and see what I did. He went and got a tarp and put it down around the car. And then he went and got every spray can, every every possible paint he could get, and he helped his mom out. (laughs) I was going to mention, if I went and painted your car, I'd pick one of you and made it psychedelic purple and all this because I thought it was Peter Max for a little while. I wanted to surprise you how that I would have ruined your car. Well, he actually did this, but, and of course, in that situation, how can you be mad at, it, at the kid? Because she complained the whole day about how she didn't like the color of the car. Maybe you could correct him, but you wouldn't want to... Well, anyway, I wasn't there, and I don't know what happened, but I know this. You, you know, our imagination and our idea of being creative and all of that, when it's not under the direction of the Holy Spirit, when it's on man's own apart from God, no matter how hard you try, it's not going to work out the way you thought. Your life is God's creation. You were created by him. And our imaginations go contrary and go in direct rebellion to him without intending it to be so. You don't have to sit around and think about how you can be wicked. It isn't, it's, it's the separation. It's the great gulf between God's righteousness, purity, and holiness, and my fallen mind. So we can talk about this without being mad at people and pointing fingers at people or hating ourselves. This isn't the goal. Or hating others. But it's thanking God for redemption for being brought back from my mind on its own without him, being made holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. You know, if you spend enough time with me, 
I don't think I'll be able to maintain above reproach in your sight, you know. I already picked on my friend, and, and, and you were mad at me for that. Some of you even have a grudge against me right now because of that. <laughs> but God forgives me. He may want me to improve. <laughs> but, you know, in his sight. In his, and see, you know, many of us spend most of our time trying to appear a certain way in everyone else's sight. You know, the more that you try to impress people, the less you're able to bless people. You can't do those two things at once. You are either trying to impress people, which means you're thinking about you and how you're coming off. How am I? How am I today? It's all about me. I can't seek to impress you and at the same time bless you. I have to be thinking of you and what God wants for you. And if that doesn't make you happy... I can't carry the weight of that. Because if I do, it's all about me and how everybody feels about me. That would get pretty annoying and worse. Our acceptance now, if you continue, it says, in the faith, grounded and steadfast, in verse 23, reading it again, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you've heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amazingly, preached to every creature. There is a way in which God reaches every heart. Romans chapter uh, 1 and 2 talk about this, and there are other places as well, and there's a time in the end where we see that with angels preaching the everlasting gospel. There's more to that story, but again, I, I've got to stay on track here. Um, so our acceptance of his provision is proven in our continuance in faith. I'll say it again. It's just a sentence I made up. Our acceptance of his provision is proven. Have I really, has it took? It's proven in my continuance in faith. Confidence in a prayer that somebody prayed 20 years ago to receive Christ, and yet, there's been no change in their life, no development of their faith, no desire for God in them. Just, I pray to prayer, I'm good. I mean, there's no more confidence in that uh, than, than, than a balloon that you pop. It, means, it doesn't mean anything. Something's wrong. No concern to change. No concern to grow. Something's wrong. Are they not true? Were they not truly saved initially? Did they lose their salvation? You argue that over lunch somewhere. What I know is, is that regardless of how that all works, something's wrong. And if a person doesn't care about their salvation, I'm going to give them scriptures that tell them you're in trouble and you better care. And if a person's trying and they're trying to seek the Lord and they're feeling like it's slipping out of their fingers, I'm going to tell them scriptures that tell them you're secure in Christ. Nobody can pluck you out of his hand. But I, I'm not going to be the theologian that fixes the, the debate between Christians that's gone on for centuries. And my friend, you're not either. I know the scriptures you have. I got the other ones. So somebody's saying, oh, he's on my side. Well, I got the other ones too. <laughs> I got ones from either side if you want to battle over that. You know what I really have? Confidence in Jesus because he works in my heart, shows me my sin, and gives me a hunger and a desire to change. It may be slow. God may, may have a lot of work to do in my life. I may stumble and fail and, and fall short, and so will you, and we'll be very patient and kind to others because we know ourselves. If we really know ourselves, you'll, it'll make you very much patient with other people if you really know yourself. 
But if I don't care, whatever. <laughs> oh, it's like this. That was loser. <laughs> you apply whichever one you want to me. It's fine. <laughs> I'm in his sight unreprovable. Okay. They, if a person doesn't care about their salvation, I, I, I'm wondering if they know salvation. Okay? Something's wrong. And any religious system, be it Adirondack Christian Fellowship, the Presbyterian Church, the whatever church, the Catholic Church, the Methodist Church, any structure, I don't care who they are, who tells you, who says to themselves that define faith as membership in an organization, even baptism without internal spiritual regeneration where your heart has been touched by God and you have yielded yourself to him in salvation. You have said, Lord, save me. I need you and I want you. It's not my exact words. But where a person is truly born again. You know, born again, the words there are used like three times in the New Testament. Regeneration is used many more times. Ken, how many? I knew you wouldn't know. Okay. (laughs) But, and neither do I. But it's used many more times. Regeneration is used more than born again. So it just doesn't, it'd be hard. You know, you must be regenerated. It doesn't sound quite the same as born again. But they're both good. And so to define faith as membership in an organization, even getting baptized or following a list of rules, reliance on human will is contrary to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not in addition to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's contrary to the cross of Jesus Christ. So we move on to the next section, the final section of chapter 1. Very interesting. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Stop there. (laughs) All right. We've all figured out we're not Paul, right? He rejoices in suffering. And he rejoices in his suffering for them. And fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, which means all of us, the body of Christ everywhere, the Colossians, the Ephesians, where he may have been, or Rome, the church, where he may have been, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. That's all believers, Jew or Gentile. However, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Paul's stewardship was to reveal the mystery that God revealed in the gospel. And it was Christ in you Gentiles. Now, it doesn't mean it doesn't speak to the Jews as well. It did. In fact, there's a very famous verse that goes with the new covenant, and I'll read to you out of Jeremiah 31. Where the Lord says, there's going to come a day of a new covenant, 3131, if you take notes, which I will make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Now that's a strong statement. God is speaking to his people and saying, 
I'm going to make a new covenant. You broke the old one. You can't keep the old one. If we wanted to extend what's really being said here in addition to all the rest of the scripture, and the understanding is you can't keep the law, and you didn't keep the You proved it. You Jewish people, you proved it. And remember, if it would have been Luigi and the Italians, <laughs> or if it had been, you know, um, can't think of a Polish name or, a, you know, uh, French or whatever. You go back in history, pick any, you know, it's, it's just humans. It's just humans. Abraham wasn't a Jew. Abraham was a guy. <laughs> the Jews came, the, the, the calling them Jews and having them have that identity, the Hebrews, came way after his initial call of God. He was a man living in Mesopotamia. He was an Ur-ite. <laughs> okay? So, yes, there's such a thing as Jews in Judaism, but there is, and I'm one. You know, but we're all saved by the same salvation. We'll see that in a minute. So, behold, the days are coming, a new covenant. Not, not the father's one. I was a husband to them, and they turned away from me. They committed adultery against me. But this is the covenant that I will make in the house, with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. Remember, my mind's unregenerate. My mind is, is opposed my imagination. I'll put my law in their minds, and I'll write it on their hearts. Not on tables of stone, but on the fleshy tables of the heart. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer will they teach each one, know the Lord, know the Lord, but they'll all know me. From the greatest to the least, from the least to the greatest, they'll know me. Because of the new covenant I make with them. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in me, refreshing my mind, cleansing my mind, giving me thoughts that are his thoughts that I would never think on my own. God in my heart, living in my spirit, joining to me, one with the Lord, giving me a passion and a desire that I would not have on my own. Don't think you're just a better person with a better heart. Without him, you can't. At all. So, Paul, now, just to make this a little bit clearer, it's why Peter stood up in Acts 15, and it's on the front of your bull, our interactive bulletin. I'm not good at putting stuff on the screen, uh, <laughs> getting people to do that for me, but this you can take home with you. You can't take the screen home, so this is a little more sophisticated, I think. When did Peter say, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they? You know, on the day of Pentecost, the church is birthed, Peter and, and the apostles, and uh, 120 people in total. They all, the, the Holy Spirit comes and floods them and fills them. Peter goes out and preaches, and 3,000 men, plus, apparently plus women and children, get saved. And, you know, there's, there's um, this amazing thing, but they still have tunnel vision. They're looking at Jews... And all they can see is Jewish salvation. You get what I'm saying? All they're seeing is Jewish salvation. They have no concept of Gentiles other than those that have been proselytized and come through Judaism. Zero. It's all the way in Acts chapter 10, some years down the road. Peter has this vision in the, on the top of the house while he's hungry. The trance, the sheet that comes down with all the animals. If you don't know the story, you just need to read Acts chapter 10. And, and, and he goes with the guys that come to his door. He goes to Cornelius' house. He doesn't really get while he's there. He just knows that God said, this is what you're supposed to do. 
What am I doing in the Gentile house? Oi, if the boys at home knew what's going on, I'd be cooked goose. And, uh, and, and so he's standing there and he goes, well, I'm just going to tell him what I know. This is what I know about. He is not thinking, oh, God, you're saving the Gentiles. This is my moment to do this. He's confused. But he's not confused about what he knows, the gospel. And he shares it. He just speaks about what God did with it. Gives his testimony, really, and shares. And the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles. And they're speaking in languages that they don't know, which we call tongues. They're rejoicing in God. The Holy Spirit is obviously regenerating them. It's like this amazing thing. And he goes, I, I, I guess we have to let you get baptized. I guess, you know, and he goes back to Jerusalem and they hammer him. Jew, the, these are the Christians. The only Christians there are are, are, are what nationality? Israel Jews. That's all there is. <laughs> They're only Jews. What are you doing going to the Gentiles? And he says, what do you want me to do? This is what happened. And, and so then in Acts 15, they have this big coming together. Now Paul has arisen on the scene as well. And Paul's Gentiles are getting saved all over the world. And now it's really like, and he's not telling them they have to come and become Jewish to be saved and be circumcised and follow the law of the Jews. They're just Gentiles are getting saved. And the, and the guys in Jerusalem, the big brains, the minds of the church, don't know what to do. And they start arguing. There's guys that want them all to, you've got to get circumcised, you've got to become Jewish, that's okay, but we've got to control this thing. <laughs> and Peter stands up and says, what are you doing? How can we put a yoke around the neck of these people? You know what a yoke is like for an ox? A burden. Why are we putting a yoke on the neck of these people that neither we or our fathers could keep. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And, you know, I just picture somebody going, shh, we're in enough trouble. There's Jews out there. If they hear you say this, they'll, they'll kill us all. It's bad enough this confirmed to the, to the Jews all around the church. So it's like, these guys are heretics following this false Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua. These guys are heretics starting this new sect of Judaism. We know they're evil. Of course, really they didn't, but they used that guise. Well, this would really help them go, see, we told you, look, at they're letting Gentiles in when Paul went to Jerusalem. The entire city was in uproar. It was bigger than a Donald Trump rally. It was the whole deal in a, in a bigger way than anything that you could imagine. It's as, at least to some degree what you imagine from what's going on today in our politics, but far more because it's intenser to a greater degree by everybody in this place. So anyway, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. There's only one form of salvation through Jesus. There's only one person. It's a person. It's not a practice or a way. In a general statement, it's the person of Jesus Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And as Joel stated, you know, the, the, the amazing thing isn't that God can surround us. It's that he can live inside of us. That the new covenant is written in our hearts. And, um, but what's lacking then in the Christ's affliction that Paul has to accomplish for us? Uh, filled with his suffering. Well, I think the best way for me to explain it is to let Paul explain it himself. Because I'll probably mess it up. But he won't. Look at the back page of your bulletin, your yellow interactive bulletin. 
we're sophisticated here. In New Living Translation, because it just might be easier for some people to grasp what's being said, for God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. See, I think Paul put Jesus as a number one. Don't you, do you think, would you agree with me that Jesus was number one to Paul? So, so this is the, he got trouble for it, but there's trouble either way. <laughs> this is good trouble, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed. Does that mean he understood everything? Paul the Apostle understood more of the New Covenant than anybody around him didn't get everything. There was things that were like perplexing. He couldn't figure it out, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Do you love that? That's through suffering... Our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So now we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. I could not say it better. It doesn't mean that you and I read that and go, got it, <laughs> but get it as much as you can. Christ, is there any affliction? Is there any lacking in the church? Is there ever a lack of love, purity, dedication? Of course, he's going to bigger issues, but there's a ministry to be fulfilled in the body of Christ by God's servants. Paul knows it well, but he's not pointing a finger. He's offering his body. He's not pointing fingers. You need to get it together. You need to get it together. You need to get it together. He's offering himself to fill up that which is lacking, to be a participant in the glory being revealed, in the light shining. Doesn't mean he's afraid to speak the truth. You know that about Paul. But it wasn't for his own benefit to get it off his chest because he was uptight. And the point is that it's not our smooth ways to impress folks that changes things. But it's light shining through brokenness. You've heard it before. You've heard studies on it. You've done it. You've used the word, some of you at least, brokenness. It's really not our favorite topic, but it's one we find ourselves facing, using, thinking about. Because while it may seem good to just not talk about things that are painful, the painful things happen anyway. And if you never talk about them, then you're just stuffing them, and they are even more painful. This is reality. But this is the good cleansing pain of brokenness. You see, there's a guy, and many of you know the story, but not everybody. In Judges chapter 6, there's a guy whose name is famous, Gideon. The other part that's famous is his story is that when he's trying to decide if this is really God coming to him, which I'll explain, he's the one that lays out the, the, the sheep fleece, you know, let it be water on the fleece and not on the ground, and that happens. And but that's not enough. Let there be water on the on the ground and not on the fleece, and then that happens. And he says, "Okay, I'll I'll move forward with God." And where people get this idea of laying out a fleece before the Lord, 
because uh, so so Gideon is he's threshing grain. We'll call it wheat, but it's that's a general term for the kind of grain they were using there. And so you know whether it's barley or something or oats or what I don't know. But he's threshing it. But he's in a cave, and he's in a cave because Israel is under the oppression and the dominion of of other nations. Case in point this time is the Midianites. They've overrun the nation, and they're like, how many of you saw Bugs Life? Okay, well, some of you have really been missing out on life, and and you need grandkids or something, but Bugs Life, the Midianites were like Hopper. Remember Hopper? He's the grasshopper that comes with his motorcycling winged, it's a great movie, and um, remember his little brother? Okay, anyway, Hopper comes and takes all the, they have to store up grain for Hopper. And the Israelites are hiding because the Midianites come and just wait till they do all the harvest and they just come and take the grain and they overpower them because they got so many in their army and Israel's in trouble and problem. He's in there hiding out, threshing grain without the wind to blow the chaff away. I mean, it's a hard process. And an angel appears to him and he knows it's an angel. And the angel says, oh, man of God, you know, great. Well, how does he say it? Um, I just lost it the exact way. And, but go in your valor, great man of God, you know. And he goes, what? Say what? And I'll paraphrase. Say what? (laughs) Go in the power of... If God's with us, why is this happening? Now, you've never heard that before. Huh? You ever hear that? Have you ever said that? Of course we have. The unregenerate mind, the fallen man, and even a Christian who's struggling yields to what is natural because of what you're seeing with your eyes. I'm not blaming you or me or anybody else for it. I am identifying it, that there's a distinction to be made between what is a thought that's of God and what is a thought that is not of God. And that's really hard when your emotion is completely attached to the thought that is not of God. You're being asked, you're being instructed, you're being challenged to be set free from your emotions and your thoughts controlling you. But it's not so that you'll do God a favor. It's not because God's mean and he wants you to do his thing his way and he wants you to squirm like a bug under a magnifying glass. His his light isn't to burn you, it's to burn away the control that your flesh, your human nature, your emotions have over you. They will take you down. They will take you away from God. Won't they? They will keep you from seeing light and truth and hope. I don't understand everybody's situation. My heart breaks for things that I am dealing with with people. And that's okay. It's better to have a broken heart than a hard heart. And I'm not the fix-it man. My heart breaks for things, and so does yours, and that's right. But I'm not going to not trust God to be glorious and over all things because I know who he is. And I know that every one of us needs to take a step back from ourself and look at him for who he is. Why are all these, if God's with us, why are we in such trouble and oppression? 
And the angel doesn't say, oh, I'm glad you asked. I want to explain it in detail to you. He says, Gideon, go in your strength. Well, then they go through this process where Gideon gets, once he gets that, this angel is really speaking for God. And those of you that want an angel to appear to you, I can show you about six times that angels, maybe more, appear to people and they argue with the angel. So don't think the appearance of an angel will fix everything. You might argue with the angel. So anyway, well, God takes him to go. It says, you're going to go and deliver Israel from the Midianites. Okay, great. Gather up all you can. He gathers up 32,000 soldiers. Problem. Midianites have weapons. These guys have, you know, their plow sticks and stuff. The Midianites have 120,000 army. And if they went out and rousted the Midian towns, they could even get more. He's got 32,000. He's probably going to God and say, look, this isn't adding up, Lord. Lord says, you're right. I want you to stand up in front of everybody and say, anybody who's fearful and afraid, just go home. What? Say what? Because <laughs> now the Lord's talking to him. And, uh, and, and so he, he gets up and does it, and 22,000 out of 32,000 gets home, goes home, leaves. And Lynn, how many are left? 22,000. I said, and Lynn? <laughs> I, didn't let, I didn't say it right. So you heard me good over there, good voice. It was 10,000 left. Wow, how are we going to do this? God says, you're right, there's a problem here. <laughs> the problem is, is that if I let you go with this many, it's still, you are going to think that your own power has accomplished this. The words in, in New King James, and I like it, in some of the old language does sound better. Um, he says, lest you say, my hand has saved me. No, really, Lord, I won't say that. I mean, there's only 10,000. There's no way we can win. No, it's too many. So go down to the water, and the ones who wrap like this, you'll pick. And the ones that dip their head in it, you won't pick. And those of you who think that's because they were really aware, looking around for the enemy, kind of doesn't really matter because it wasn't going to be the power of this army. It was going to be the number of the army being so small. So I don't know if that makes any sense at all anyway, but that's fine if you believe it was because they were the upright ones that were like ready to go. Maybe they did need to be energized to face it because they were actually willing to go. <laughs> but he gets 300 men, and he says, okay, and he gets the plan. Everybody get a clay pot, which is a little pot that they'd have for water made out of clay. <laughs> and, and, you take a, and they took a torch, you know, a stick of wood when they wrapped some cloth or stuff around it or material of some kind or the grass dipped in oil and they could keep it lit inside the pot as long as they kept air in it but you couldn't really see it and everybody got a shofar a little ram's horn they got somehow they managed out of as they sent guys home they probably said do you have a ram's horn <laughs> yeah. and they had to gather up 300 of those and every guy has a pot a torch and a ram's horn and whatever kind of weapon they were able to carry and they go at night and they surround the city I mean, the, the, the encampment of the Midianites, 120,000 strong. And when you hear me say, the sword of the Lord, and I yell out, the sword of the Lord and Gideon, you pull the light out, you break the pot. <laughs> there is a little bit of a plan here from God. He wouldn't need any of it, but it gave, probably gave them a little more sense of security. Probably just the words out of his mouth was enough. But God said, here's what you do. You crash the pot, you hold up the light, 300 lights surrounding them, they hear all this noise, and then every single one of them, which a ram's horde could represent, you know, another, uh, you know, 2,000 guys, you know, or 20,000, you know, there's like the, all around them they, is, it was exactly like that, too. <laughs> but God could have had one horn go, 
<laughs> and it still would have worked. Okay, just remember that. Okay, because it, it's a picture he painted for him. And the sword of the Lord Gideon crashed, boom, ooh, and light, and the Midianites freak. That's the new New Living Translation. <laughs> and they freak, and they just start fighting each other, bumping into each other, hurting each other, and running away. And Gideon chases them, but then he didn't have to chase them all that far. They're gone. And Israel is saved. And, and God does this great thing. And lest you say your hand has saved me. Lest you say it's because of my strength, because of my power, because of my logic, because I figured this thing out. See, if you're going to counsel people, and you don't have to be a pastor or a professional counselor to counsel people. If you're going to counsel people, something you have to be comfortable with is to tell people to slow everything down and go listen for the Lord. And you better believe that God can speak to people. And I do. I don't have the answer for everything. But I know that somebody who is actually really wants to hear from God more than their own emotion or their own thought or their own logic, I, I don't believe the Lord is going to turn his back on them. If you humble yourself before God, he'll lift you up. How do you know if you've really humbled yourself before him? Because he'll lift you, starting on the inside. He will comfort you and assure you. Do, it's either God is or he isn't. There's a journey. But you can't, don't counsel people and give them all kinds of advice. And Rick, you need to hear this yourself. If you're not going to point him to Jesus and just point him to good advice, because it may or may not work, and because that isn't your role in their life, to just tell them answers, other people answers. Obviously, counsel from the word about, should, should I rob a bank today? Well, let's see what it says about stealing. No, you shouldn't. Okay. But there are things that require the Holy Spirit to speak to people, to comfort and assure them, and tell them he's enough. And I know that my voice is not enough. But I'm not going to not say it, but I'm going to say it because I believe it. Why do I believe it? Because he's proven himself to me in my life that he's enough. I still stumble. I still get messed up. But I know where to go when I get messed up. Do you know where to go when you're messed up? To the feet of Jesus. It's, there's never, ever, ever, ever going to be a replacement for that. You're not going to logic your way, figure your way, smart your way out of needing Jesus. And it's not wrong that you do everything right that you do. Don't measure your capacity to be effective by human reasoning. Paul says we preach, which is to the non-believer. We teach, which is to the believer. And I am thankful for a group of people to be with who are willing to be taught the word. I don't know how well you're taught, but I know you endure teaching, meaning you're willing to go through it step by step, point by point, and not just have a happy, clappy thought for the day to live by. And because you desperately and I desperately need to be taught the word and to live it out in our lives. And you know what? I need to be broken so light can shine through me like Gideon's pots because I'm just a crackpot. So let the light shine through. I didn't make up that joke. It's been around a while. But uh, told better, by the way. But you know what? I can be broken
I can be broken. I can do this because my Lord has been broken and crushed and destroyed humanly, physically for me. That's what he went through. That's what we're doing today. We're saying, this is what you have done for me. How far did Jesus come? Well, Father, I'll go to earth, but they're going to treat me right. No, that wasn't his boundary. No, I'll go to earth, and they can treat me bad, and they can mock me and make fun of me, but nobody's going to spit in my face. No, that wasn't his boundary, was it? They spit in his face. Well, I'll let them spit in my face, but they're not going to beat my face to a pulp and then tear my back apart with a cat of nine tails. No, that wasn't his boundary. I'm not suggesting that you, uh, in your life, seek ways to have people destroy you. (laughs) But follow this. Jesus' boundary for your salvation, how far did he come? Okay, I'll, go to, I'll let them do all that, but I'm not going to the cross. I won't let them strip me naked and hang me in front of everyone and pierce me through. Well, aren't you glad he didn't put that boundary in front of his? You know, folks, that's not even it. That's not even it. Because he didn't just hang physically on a cross and suffer physically. Okay, Father, I will suffer all of that. I can do that. I can do that, Lord. God, Father, I can do that because I'm one with you. I'm connected to you. I'm sensing your presence and your help. But I won't be separated in my sense of your presence. And this is beyond our understanding. Don't ask me to explain this. Just let it soak in beyond your mind. But I will take all the weight of every sin. And you don't even know what that means. The weight of, you don't, you don't even know what it means, do you? I don't. I will take every weight. He who knew no sin became sin. I won't just take the weight of it. I'll let me be the sin and the judgment. And that's why he'd shout out, Father. Why have you forsaken me? How far did Jesus come for you? How far did he come? He came from heaven to earth to show the way. But he went from the earth to the cross. My debt to pay. And from the cross to the grave and from the grave to the sky. And that's why no matter what I'm going through, Lord, I lift your name on high. You know, we retire songs. That song's been hung from the rafters, you know, like in a stadium. But we're going to bring it down, and Joel's going to sing it. And after this song's done, you can come and take communion as the next song begins. So, Lord, we pray that you would meet us, that you would help us to believe.